Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Unlike stick and ball sports, where only two teams compete against one another in any given game, Dozens of drivers competing against one another in auto racing requires tracking each car over hundreds of laps. And that means a variety of processes have been used to score cars and keep the running order accurate. And boy, has it been confusing at times along the way. So let's just go ahead and say there's been some guesswork mixed with primitive technology in the form of pen and paper. And there you have it. NASCAR's way of keeping up with drivers leading races and those that have been lapsed down. The system was remarkably accurate for many decades, but let's face it, there was plenty of room for mistakes to be made. For decades, NASCAR used the scoring card system, and after the green flag wave, scores would watch for their assigned car from the scoring stand and match it with a digital clock as they pass the scoring line. Sounds simple enough, right? That is until a lap was accidentally missed, and then it was a recipe for disaster. Crew members were often sent to the scoring stand to check on where their car was on the track, as there was not a way to check on a car's status from the pits. As time went on, an unofficial count was kept in the pits, and in many cases, it was the driver's wife or girlfriend that handled that job. It worked out pretty well. The system was exceptionally good, but occasionally, did run across problems. NASCAR's first known scoring dispute came on September 7, 1951 at Columbia, South Carolina Speedway. Tim Flock was given the win of the 100-mile race after leading 128 of 200 laps. Glenn Fireball Roberts was originally flagged the winner with Flock in second. Flock's team owner, Ted Chester, asked for a check of scorecards, which was the first time the scorecard system was used. Ed Severance, Robert's team owner, was so angry after the reversal that he refused the $700 second-place money, but NASCAR's decision stood. There were many times controversy was handled because of scoring throughout the years. It was inevitable that it was going to happen, and it did many, many times. Since May of 1993, all Cup Series, Xfinity Series, and Camping World Truck Series races have been electronically scored by NASCAR. Timing loops are currently used and have been placed in racetracks with a transponder placed at the left rear of each race car. Lap times can be determined to thousandths of a second and read on computer screens at NASCAR Control as well as on pit road by race teams. Timing and scoring has changed a great deal over the years, and thank goodness, without those changes, drivers and team owners would still be arguing their cases like country lawyers and small county seat courthouses. It all began in 1949, and scoring in NASCAR has taken on many forms over seven decades of racing. 
Hey, everyone, and welcome to another edition of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. I'm Jerry Bunkowski, along with my good buddy, Ben White, and we are actually celebrating a milestone. That's right. Episode number 75 of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast, and great to obviously have you with us again, as usual. And Ben, we're going to talk about something that really, you know, we we don't talk about that often in the sport, but it's one of the most um, it, it's one of the most significant elements of the sport, and that's scoring. You know, not a lot of people think about it, but scoring has been with the sport since day one. It's how we keep track of where guys are at on the racetrack. And, you know, you have had a great history. You've been, been able to keep track of how the different nuances in the, the world of scoring have taken place in the sport. And really, and we're, we're going to get into this in a few moments here, um, ben has got some great stories to tell about how scoring has evolved in the sport of NASCAR. And really, it has been a very, um, up until 1993, it was a very, um, very simplistic, almost antiquated system uh, where it was almost like a checkmark kind of thing. And, you know, people would uh, essentially check off a driver as he would come around a certain point at a racetrack. And since 1993, we've had transponders, which, which have automated the system, but still, you know, for, you know, the first, what, uh, 50, almost 50 years of NASCAR, we had basically people with pencils or pens checking off the number of laps and, and things like that. And that's a very unusual system, but, Ben, you know, you've watched this the scoring system evolved over the years. Can you kind of you know, kind of address how how you know antiquated or elementary the system was? It worked though. I mean, it did work for all those years and then eventually we wound up going to the transponders in 1993. Tell us about just how the whole scoring system evolved over the years. Well, sure will, Jerry. And, you know, I mean, in all honesty, you have to go back to other sports and, and sort of as a comparison to start with. First off, I mean, if you got two basketball teams on a, on a wood court or say you got two football teams on a, a grass uh, football field, of course, you got one of the two teams is going to win the the uh, the game, right? I mean, whoever scores the most points, it's pretty easy to, to you know, to decide who's going to win that whoever's going to win by touchdowns or whoever's going to win by, of course, the basketball going through the hoop or say uh, two baseball teams on, on the field and whoever hits the most home runs or makes the most uh, scores, right? Well, in racing, obviously, you've got 36 to 40 cars out there at one time and they're all going around in circles and you're like, holy cow, how are we going to keep up with who's winning the race, who's a lap down, who's half a lap down, who's doing what? And so obviously from day one, they in all forms of motorsports, you had to come up with a way to uh, to keep up with everybody on the racetrack, and that became a real problem. Then you throw in a bunch of rooster tail dust storms. Uh, these guys were kicking up, and you're trying to figure out the, the numbers on the doors. And <laughs> before you know it, you get it's got a, a hayride of a bunch of cars out there driving around <laughs> circles, and uh, you had to figure out who was out front. So, all right, from 19, uh, June 19th, 1949 to 1993, no kidding, 
the way it was done and, and good old time NASCAR professional stock car racing was it uh, people would get in a scoring stand and these were provided by the driver or the team and they knew each other the same way that pit crews knew one another and they'd go in this building and they would uh, have have a basically a scorecard and uh, Morris Metcalf who was a longtime scorer of NASCAR would stand in front of everyone and they would, you know, have their um, instructions before the race would begin pretty much the same instructions every week, but they'd have this nuance or that nuance or whatever the case may be. And then there would be a, an electric scoring clock that these people would look at, at right in front of the scoring stand. And there's these things, this, what I would call a flip clock. And this was, this would go on for years. Now this has been, you know, elevated from, from decade to decade, but from day one, pretty much you had to have something to write down, uh, as you went on. But in the very beginning days, uh, your car would come by and you would, and this is very reason why you have a top number, say a number one through 99 on top of your race car. So the person in the scoring stand could see your car, their car go by and they'd put down a check mark. Well, Okay, let's say, though, that this person's looking to the left or the right, or someone says, hey, what a beautiful day it is. And we're like, holy cow, did my car go by? Right? <laughs> so, you know, so this, this, this tends to be a problem. Now, uh, going way, way back to 1911 at, at the inaugural Indianapolis 500, 40 cars uh, crossed over a wire believe this or not, to create an imprint on a time card. This is the way they did it for the very first Indianapolis 500. Timing and scoring workers noted which car tripped the wire to build a running order for each lap. And then that uh, have worked out well until an accident occurred and wiped out the scoring stand on lap 137 of that <laughs> particular race. So the laps 138 through 176 of the 200-lap race were a little iffy. Uh, leaving Ray Heron winning the race, but obviously in question. So that was a little bit of a problem there. So every what the point I'm trying to make is from the very beginning, this dates all the way back to 1911, wasn't even a NASCAR race. That was a problem. And of course, that uh, led to a great deal of controversy at the very beginning, Indianapolis 500. So scoring has always been a problem. Uh, in as far as all types of motorsports, but that's the way NASCAR has done it for, for many years, uh, until they came up with what they have today, which is a very elaborate scoring loop type situation where it's, I don't know how many, maybe every hundred yards is some type of electronic, something in the track. We get into that a little bit later, but, uh, it's, it's interesting. Some of the stories, uh, that have come out of, of how they've done it over the years. And I can get into some of that as we talk. Well, I've got to ask you this. Now I'm from Chicago and obviously we were known for El Capone and <laughs> you know, that kind of thing, but we're uh -huh. also known for, you know, um, for our politics. And one of the thing is that, you know, we're historically uh, known for is the saying vote early, vote often. Okay, so that means, you know, go in and vote 10 times a day if you want to in, on the voting days. So what sure. prevented a scorekeeper for a certain team to bend the rules to, mm -hmm. you know, say that his guy 
completed, let's say, 110 laps when he maybe only completed 108 laps or something like mm-hmm. that. I mean, what prevented <clears throat> well, what prevented you know the the the, the tomfoolery? What prevented the the cheating? What prevented the underhanded stuff? You know, back in the day. Yeah. Well, it all goes back to the scoring clock or the flip clock I was talking about. So. So getting deeper into that, what they would do is, let me see if I can explain this a little bit better. This flip clock would flip constantly, okay, all mm-hmm. the time during the race. When you took the green flag initially, this flip clock, and it's still used today, where this flip clock uh, would flip, and that number would come up, and I don't know what number it starts with. But, and I think it's still used today. I believe it is. I'm not 100% sure about that because of this new scoring system they have, but it's just another insurance <laughs> policy as to, um, to make sure it's scored correctly. But that flip clock, each time that your car would go by, you wrote down, say, I don't know, well, let's just hypothetically uh, grab a number out of the air 2134. Mm-hmm. So you come by and 2134 is written down on your square as your car comes by. And then it takes so long, so many seconds to go around the lap, say at Wilkesboro, for instance. And by the time you get back, it's 2145, for instance. And you write down 2145. And you have to compare those numbers on your chart that you're writing down. But also you have people, if you have a score, NASCAR has a score that's also doing the same thing you are. And so you're comparing your numbers with their numbers. And it's not those days. It wasn't 100%. It was pretty good. I mean, really, they very rarely had problems uh, with the scoring system. And you, and the key though, was that you had to have a good score that would stick with it. And you had to concentrate on what you were doing mm-hmm. during that time. I mean, you, you couldn't, you just go up there and just be chatty Kathy the whole time you're up there. Cause you had to really concentrate on what you were doing. But if people would say, well, why is there a number on top of the car and on the doors? You didn't look at the doors, really. You looked at the top of the car because say you're at a Daytona or a Talladega, for instance, and see that would made it even tougher because if you're at a Talladega and you got a pack of five wide and two inches or five, six inches apart coming by, you really have to concentrate in the old days to make sure that you saw your car go by. And that's when the, you know, the rubber hit the road, so to speak, to make sure you had a great score, because when you had those packs of cars, you had to make sure you saw your car. Now, if you had a problem in the scoring stand, you could raise your hand and say, Hey, I'm not sure if I saw what I saw, or did I, did I miss a lap? And of course, NASCAR is there to help you. That's why you had that second person. Uh, they're trying to help you as far as your scoring would go, but let's, let's go back just a smidge. Okay. Let's say that you had that four point mile, uh, 4.1 mile, uh, beach and road course at Daytona. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is before the Daytona international speedway was built. Right. Well, very early in the game, Bill France senior founder of NASCAR says, okay, holy cow, we got a problem because we can't see that far. You know, this is a really big place. It's kicking up the sand. Uh, you know, this is really hard to score. So, I mean, Chris Economaki, who was uh, a great announcer during his day, very early in the game, you know, he's he would even say, I, you know, I'm calling the race, but I think I'm calling it correctly, you know, because you can't see that far. 
And so he would try to give the top 10 a lot of times uh, over the PA system. And he admitted later on, he's like, I'm guessing at some of the cars that I'm seeing. Well, if you're guessing, fans are probably guessing, and it could be the scoring is guessing. So, I mean, it was, there were years in some of these races that, yeah, you knew who the top five were, but if you're getting into some of these 60 and 70 car fields, are you really sure who's running 63rd? Well, no, because I mean, those, some of those were very sketchy as far as, uh, the accuracy of, of back in those days. And of course, I mean, they didn't, they didn't pay completely all the way back. They might've paid the top 20 or 25 cars in some of those races. And it didn't really matter all that much, you know, as far as the pay window back way back in the field, but you still wanted to make sure that you stored it, scored it correctly. But it was a challenge, to be honest with you, uh, to, to be able to score some of these races. And another problem was it, that you ran into back in those days is these cars would use uh, some type of wide tape or what we call duct tape, 200 mile an hour tape. And well, the early days back in those days, when you get uh, the air coming off of the uh, ocean, back on in you know on the beach well it didn't stick very well to the cars so sometimes you'd have a green car come by or a black car come by or a red car come by they didn't have a number and these are cars or that were not technically race cars they were they were cars that come off the driveway you know surface right so you know the tape some of the cars were missing numbers so yeah it was a, a monumental headache to try to figure out where these cars were in the in the lineups and so that was a, a major problem that NASCAR had to face. Well, you know, we when we talk, obviously, Ben, you talk with the glass half full. Me, I'm the mm-hmm. I'm the I'm the negative guy. I'm the guy that's glass is half empty. How over all those years did NASCAR maintain um credibility? And more importantly, honesty, because it blows my mind. We were talking off the air before we started taping today that the scores for each team were not chosen by NASCAR. They were chosen by the teams themselves. So if a team owner or even a driver said, hey, I want, you know, Joe Smith or whomever to be my scorer. Well, to me, the. Uh, ability to have some dishonesty, if you will, or, you know, let's just say a little bit of lack of honesty would be there, but it it almost seems like they're not, that ever really happened or did it happen? I mean, what, mm. what can you tell me about the, the honesty or maybe lack of honesty during well, it, that little system? Well, if, it's good that you asked that because the, the system itself wouldn't let you cheat. Okay. Because, because you had, again, you had people on both sides of the net, so to speak. You had your own score that, and, and, and if you're, say I'm a driver, I want that person to, to go to court, so to speak, to defend me. I don't want them to do, try to do something that's going to be crooked or sideways because I want them to defend me in, in the court system and then you've got nascar on their side that's trying to make sure everything's all kosher mm-hmm. and that you want them to match you don't you don't really you didn't really want them to try to slide in but there's too many 
there were too many eyeballs watching this the system too you couldn't it was extremely hard to try to slide in a lap because everybody else has got lap cards too everybody else is watching and that's when you got into these controversies after races where you were a driver or a crew chief would say you know he's a lap down and i know he's a lap down and i can prove he's a lap down because of the scores and mm -hmm. we can get into some of that later in the show here but I know of two or three races that are still people that were involved in those races that have long since retired still in the witness box saying, <laughs> I won that race, you know, and, and they'll stand, they'll, they'll go to their grave saying it and others will say, no, you didn't. And they're still over a beer in a bar debating that particular finish. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I could tell you a couple of those, but I want to, I want to share something with you too, Jerry, that I thought was very interesting. You're talking about the accuracy of this mm -hmm. uh, for a brief time. Here's another way they tried it and it was, it went bust, but, you know, trying to be very accurate about the way this was done. Now, now this one will make you laugh. Okay. This was very brief, but they tried it, didn't work. Okay, for a brief time in 1955, NASCAR used a system where one letter of the alphabet was placed on each car on their left front fender. Okay, see if you can follow this. Okay. As the cars, okay, as the cars would come by a point on the track, this is before the clock, this is before the scoring stand, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Now, each time the car would come by a point on the track, a, a full-blown sworn stenographer, like in a court of law, <laughs> cannot make this up. They would get stenographers from the local courthouses would come to the track and they would type a letter on a sheet of paper. Okay. On with a type, like a stenographer, you know how you go in a court. Right. 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 All right. Okay. And they would type on a sheet of paper to log each car that went by. So let's say that you and I are on a racetrack. Okay. And I'm in a Dodge and you're in an Oldsmobile and they gave me letter B and they gave you letter C. Well, as elementary as this sounds, we'd go through turn one and there's a, they've put a trailer there and we've stepped, the stenographers would step on the trailer and they'd have a row of these stenographer, you know, machines on a table. And every time I came by, somebody would go and hit the B. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> it, I mean, with a full blown stenographer machine now, that's not the, you know, and they would say, boom, B. Ben White went by, B. <laughs> and here comes Jerry driving his butt off, coming through there. And you were, I guess you were A, whatever I said. And they go, A. <laughs> and this went on. The scoring system only lasted, needless to say, for a few races, but it was way overblown. It didn't work. It was, you know, because again, you're faced with that situation after the race. Well, you got more A's than I, than <laughs> I got B's, right? Uh, right. But these are like, they went seriously, they went to courthouses, got the stenographer. They're supposed to be upstanding, sworn, you know, they're going to be there on Monday through Friday typing these. They're court reporters. Cases. That's right. I mean, if you court can't believe reporters. a court reporter, who can you believe? I mean, come on, right? right. Right, but they're going to go to the racetrack, get them a Coke and a hot dog and put them on a stand. <laughs> no, I cannot make this up. And they put them on there and say, well, if you can, if you can do a flu-blown murder case, 
well, by golly, you can hit B <laughs> or C or D or F or G or K or whatever. And they would, there are photos oh my out God. there. There's a big K on the side or on the front left fender. So they could see it. G H I J, whatever case, but what's the next problem you have? Well, there's only 26 letters in the alphabet. That's so, true. That's right. So what do you do? You put double A, double B, <laughs> double C, if you had further out. So that means you got to take the time to hit it twice. Okay. So mm, didn't think of that. So that didn't work, but just a few races. So they scrapped that idea, but you know, we tried everything so that that's when they come up with the idea of doing the scoring system in a booth, but, but let's, let's back up. The booths didn't start until I want to say late to mid sixties, because there are photos at Charlotte motor speedway at Atlanta motor speedway of the trailer tops mm -hmm. where these people would uh, be sitting on a trailer. But the problem with that was the same problem they had in the press boxes because they had, used to have open air press boxes. And so when the cars came by, all the papers and all the scorecards would blow away because the wind, right? Because the cars were generating so much wind at 200 miles an hour that the cards wouldn't stay on the desks. Right. So that's when they said, oh, well, okay, let's, let's build sides to the scoring stand. And the same way that they started building closed in press boxes. I remember that I know, you know, him or knew him, but sadly he's passed away. Dick Thompson, who used mm -hmm. to be at Martinsville speedway. He was the PR director there. And he said he worked for the Martinsville bulletin and he goes to the Martinsville speedway for the first time as a young cub reporter. And they hand him a pad and a pen and a pair of goggles and say, and he says, Oh, this is so kind of them to let me have this. What a wonderful gift. <laughs> Well, it wasn't a wonderful gift. That's when they had an open air press box. <laughs> so you don't understand. You need these to survive the next 500 laps here at Martinsville. Right, right. Because you're going to, or Dar actually he went to Darlington. That's where it was. It was Darlington, not Martinsville. And he was from Martinsville covering the Darlington race. And so he goes to Darlington. He He's in the first 10, and, and all his, you know, the, the veteran guys are up on the top race, and he's not going to last down there on the front row. He doesn't get it. And so, and he tell, Dick told me this story chuckling the whole way through. And he says, that's what the goggles were for. And all my papers blew away. And I was back up in the middle of section of press box after about five laps of this. Well, that's the year that Earl Balmer came off that coming down the, the back stretch and lost control and dang near wiped out the press box. Right, killed, right. Just about killed 25 or 30 of the press members. So, you know, that's, that's the same thing with the scoring stand is they finally dawned on them that, okay, maybe we need to put sides on the scoring stand because the storing scoring cards are being blown away. So that's how that developed. So it, most of it's trial and error that happens after something happens in NASCAR is when they get the bright idea to do something. So that's the story and I'm sticking to it. So there, <laughs> that's how all that happened. So there you go. Well, let me ask you a question. Okay, now this is going to be a very naive question. Okay, go but, ahead. Okay, so typically on top of a pit box, you got the crew mm -hmm. chief, maybe the team owner, maybe one or two other people is up there. Now, I understand that back in the day, the pit box was different, maybe smaller, maybe there weren't that many people up there. Maybe it was different. Okay, I get that. 
But couldn't you have had, since you already had your own scorer that you picked to watch your car up in the press box or wherever the the you know the scoring box was at, wouldn't it have been more conducive to have your scorer next to your crew chief or your team owner or whomever because you'd be able to get that information immediately right there as opposed to asking you know john next door to you or or jack down the road you're down the aisle saying hey i might have missed my guy go by did you see him go by you know that kind of thing i mean i'm i'm kind of curious why why didn't they have these scores with the the team guys do you know what i'm saying yeah, I do, and that's not a that's not a silly question at all. Actually, what they would do is they would have an official score in the press box, or excuse me, the scoring box. Mm-hmm. But many times they would have an a, an unofficial score sitting on the press. I mean, uh, the, the pit box. Mm-hmm. But the the pit boxes really didn't come into play until I'm guessing I'm guessing at this. I want to say mid '80s. Okay, so maybe maybe late 80s they didn't even dream of having those but but they did have uh, someone in their pit that would kind of score them unofficially but now i do remember eddie wood telling me that they would often send a crew member one of the guys that maybe would go run for gas or and eddie said he even did it too he would go walk over there to the scoring uh, stand and just get a check on where David Pearson was in that perlator mercury, if he was a lap ahead or a lap behind or whatever the case was, because the communication level was like zilch. Right. They didn't really have a good communication system back then. But a lot of times then it dawned on people like, okay, well, here's the driver and his wife wants to be close to the driver, uh, you know, in the pits, let's give her something to do. (laughs) Right. So, okay, well, you can score the car and score your husband driving the car and that's a help to us and you know you're it is helpful so they started allowing the you know the wives to do it unofficially and then if there was some kind of controversy which not often but they did happen then the wife could say well hey wait hold the phone (laughs) this is what i say unofficially and then they would go back and talk with their score and the scoring stand and to see if the wife uh, was off or whatever, or many times it would match because they told her how to do it. And she'd say, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And then that's the way it would come down. And, and they would fix the controversy because they had a second person doing it. And I mean, it was unofficial, but most times it would match. Mm-hmm. And uh, just a little more help, you know, of the argument. It wasn't an official argument from the wife, but it gave her something to do and she enjoyed it. And then, you know, it helped the team and and then they compared notes. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. When did the actual um, scoring scoreboard, scoring towers, whatever you want to call it, actually come into existence? And how did they determine those places on the scoreboards from I mean, were those from the score, the guys in the scoring booth or, I mean, when, when did that all kind of transpire in NASCAR? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, they, 
like for instance, uh, let's take two different racetracks. Okay, let's let's look at day. Okay, let's look at Daytona or Darlington and Martinsville. Two different ends of the spectrum. Say Daytona, if you look at some of that old footage, you only see the top five or six cars. Say the top five cars mm -hmm. at Daytona, and those numbers would come from somebody in the scoring stand. So it might be Richard Petty, David Pearson, Buddy Baker, Kelly Yarborough, uh, and Richard Petty. If I didn't say Richard Petty, you said Petty already. already. Yeah, you said him already. Okay, so so five cars. Okay, five, the top five. Charlie Glassback. Let's throw him in there. Okay. All right. So you only <laughs> okay. and and that that was the top five guys. That would then it would be a, a scoring, not really a pylon. It's sort of like a lighted board in the center of daytona or say talladega because mm -hmm. the fans were like okay i really only care about the top five because the guys past top five in a lot of cases were two laps down four laps down right. six laps down etc right? right right so but at a track like martinsville which is really unique over in the or let's take wilkesboro for instance over there they didn't have an electronic scoreboard. They had a guy standing up there and either had a walkie talkie or a telephone or something. And somebody's okay, this is a, these are the boards you need to put up there. And he would physically take a board, a number down and put another, another number up and like painted boards, all right. Painted circles, <laughs> which is really cool. So he right. put those top five up there and a bit primitive. Yes, but he would somehow be, or somebody ride over there in a golf cart and say, okay, there's your top five, <laughs> you know, and it was majorly cool because that's the way they did it at say Wilkesboro or Martinsville for years and years. And if you go back and look at, you know, I, I was doing um, a podcast with uh, Eric Step and Josh Mole the other day about called um, uh, Zoom Lens. And we were doing the movie, The Last American Hero. It's a mm -hmm. great movie. And if you look at this movie and you look at the footage of this movie, you can see that scoreboard over there, the original scoreboard at Martinsville. And it's over there where they just do those top five. And there's a guy standing up there and he's changing the numbers. I'm not sure if they show it in the movie, but you might see a glimpse of that scoreboard. Mm -hmm. And it's, he gets that information from, from the scoring uh, box where they're scoring the race. But again, the key to this whole thing is, Back in those days, it, you know, Pearson would be leading. Richard Petty might be second. Your third car in there might be a, maybe two laps down, and your fourth car might be four laps mm -hmm. down, and your fifth car might be six laps down. You know, it's very possible that was the case. And so he had plenty of time to go up there and change, you know, those top five positions. Uh, it wasn't like today you know when you had everybody moving around all over the racetrack and, and it needed and what is there today needed to be there today because it got fortunately the competition is so great today but back in that era you had a wide gap between first and fifth and first and tenth and uh which is an all entirely different story we could get into on a different podcast but it was that was the era that was the way it was and back in the 50s 60s 70s and then in the eighties, you got more sophisticated about first through 40th where in the, in the seventies, I'm, I'm rambling here, but the seventies, you had the first five or six, seven, eight cars could mm -hmm. be in and the rest they knew they weren't going to. 
by the time you got into the 90s, you probably had maybe 25 of the 40 cars that could win. By the time you got into the 2000s, 2010s, you had a vast majority of the cars that could win. So as time has gone on, the competition has gotten greater and which put more burden on the, you know, the, the, the scoring system to make sure that everybody didn't accidentally lose the lap. And then suddenly you got this major controversy and we, I want to get into some of those stories before we end the podcast, because some of them, it just came down to a lap lost and suddenly everybody's hair is on fire and everybody's, you know, shaking fists and being mad and all that over one lap being lost in that one lap was the person who looked to the right or looked to the left and they didn't see their car come by. And suddenly, holy cow, everybody's mad at night and they finally figure it out, you know, and that's where that second set of NASCAR people or a second set of somebody sits down and figures out this where the lap got lost. Right. You know, in the let's, let's get into some of those stories. But before we do that, um, let's go forward and then go backward. And what I, what I mean by that okay. is, um, you know, we had that system in place for so many years. And then it come 1993, a very monumental change took place um, in the May of 1993. Ben, tell us about that. Yeah, well, what happened was that they, NASCAR had been working on the system, and I want to say from uh, maybe 85 up, they just wanted to get a system in place to where they didn't have to go visit this again. You know how you would have a driver who um, maybe come off a pit road a certain way, and he wasn't picked up by the pace car and should have been, or picked up as the leader and shouldn't have been, mm-hmm. and you know, this creates this monumental headache, you know, for scoring, for NASCAR, for the fans, for everybody. Whereas you have a transponder in the car and links on the racetrack where you have a, a what we have today, where you have this uh, electronic system that tells exactly uh, who is where in a nutshell, in a very elementary way, it just basically tells you where, what's what, and right. there's no, there's no question about what, who is where on the racetrack. And it's not left up to, um, through those scoring it's done by computer and it's very, very sophisticated, very advanced. And we know exactly when the, the caution comes out, we know exactly who to pick up on the racetrack because when you're doing it among people, uh, there is, there is a place for mistakes to be made. And most times, all times when in the past, when these cards were filled out or the pace car driver gets the wrong direction or he picks up the wrong car, then suddenly somebody's happy and somebody's not happy. The person happy is the one that gets picked up as the leader and he wasn't supposed to be. And the one who is supposed to be picked up the leader is back there shaking his fist and in radio to his crew chief. And so I should have been the leader. Why is he been picking this up, get up here in front of me. And this eliminates all of those questions because, you know, when you're watching TV and they can feel, they can pick out exactly when the caution light came mm-hmm. on and all these things, but the car in a, in a long winded way, I'll try to condense it. The car has a transponder on it. The car that know exactly all these links all around the racetrack, know exactly who's to be picked up as the leader who pitted when, who didn't pit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in a very, very elementary way. 
and they can figure out who's to be picked up. But for the vast majority of NASCAR's history, they didn't have all that. Mm -hmm. The technology wasn't there. And so it was done by human, uh, <coughs> you know, by humans, and there was room for error. Let's, let's say it that way. Let me ask you this. And I don't know this. I would think we don't need it, but does NASCAR have a backup plan today on scoring? I'm just curious. I mean, do we do we still have people maybe still doing check marks, or is everything um, so sophisticated with the with the transponder system that there's no need for a backup system? That that's an incredibly good question. And I want to say there's not anybody doing the paper backup stuff anymore because it's so sophisticated. I don't okay. think they need to anymore. Okay. Uh, I think if you had a major power outage or something to that effect, I think everybody goes to pit road and I don't know what the backup plan is. <laughs> I really don't. That's a great question. I, I don't think they even know what the backup plan is. I don't know. Maybe they, I don't know. That's a great question. I don't, I don't know that they've ever run into that before. There might, I, I, this is my guess. My guess is this. It's sort of like a hospital when you have a major thunderstorm and it knocks out the power within 10 seconds or something, they've got a backup generator or backup something right. that, that brings it right back up. I guess that's my, I, I think that's the way it works, but that's a really good question, Jerry. And I don't have an answer to it. That would, that would make sense. I mean, I, I would have to think they would probably have some kind of a, um, a mechanical um, system, you know, a, a power backup, generator yeah. or something like that to, to yeah. keep going you're right I'm, or maybe or maybe they just do it on batteries i mean you know have a computer that you know has a battery backup or something like that so but yeah. but but you know you were mentioning a few moments ago about some of the uh unusual stories back in the day you know where you know uh uh the the results of races may have been altered or skewed not intentionally but by mistake and guys may have not finished where they thought they finished because of human error. Let's let's yeah. get into some of those stories you were okay. talking about. Sure. Well, the first one that comes to my mind, and there's been several, mm -hmm. many, through the years. The first one that comes to mind is the 1962 Southern 500. This dates way back. Uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Larry Frank who was in an independent Ford. And I say independent, he really didn't have any backing from Ford Motor Company. He Fielded his own car, number 66 Ford Galaxy. Uh, pretty much set the woods on fire that day. He led a lot of laps. And um, he he won the race. But somehow or another, they lost a lap in the scoring stand for Frank. And as it turned out, Junior Johnson was running second. They gave the win to Junior. They went back. And hours later, hours and hours later, they figured out after junior had enjoyed this the victory lane celebration and by the way friends don't realize the southern 500 at darlington was is continues to be but back in back in those days a major victory for anybody who won the southern 500 mm -hmm. it still is right but i mean it was, run, it was run on monday darlington south carolina major <laughs> major win and larry frank was did not win the race it was given to junior he took the uh, Larry took the checkered flag, but then they looked and said, no, you're a lap down. You're not in the lead or you're on the tail end of the lead lap. I can't remember if he's lap down or tail end, but anyway, he didn't get the win. Uh, Junior Johnson gets the win, enjoys the win. Everything's great. And they start looking at the scorecards and it was way after dark. 
And they the next day they the headline says Larry Frank wins the Southern 500. But sadly, Larry was and rightly so he was bitter about that losing that victory the rest of his life. And you know he did not enjoy the victory. They gave him the the trophy basically in his living room. But that's not the point. The point is that he should have been given the victory. He drove his butt off to get the, the victory in his own car. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was simply a scoring error that took him, took the win away. They should have had a grand victory lane ceremony. They should have gone back to the racetrack. You know, they finally admitted it was a mistake, but, you know, it was a, a bittersweet win for him. And there were several drivers like that throughout history. You know, another one that comes to mind was 1959. Of course, that really wasn't a, I started to say Lee Petty at, da- at Daytona in the first Daytona 500, but that was really more of a photo finish situation than it was a scoring error. So I really have to back off of that. But that was another one where Lee Petty got the trophy three days, four days later in his right. living room too. But that later on, people have said, well, that was just trying to get more headlines and more headlines, you know, in the Daytona news journal, you know, I think they sort of knew Lee Petty won that one, but they love the headlines. So they let that one drag out a little bit. That really wasn't, didn't qualify. There's another one that's still out there, 1978, uh, Donnie Allison, Richard Petty in Atlanta. And, you know, that one went eventually, Donnie won the race. They were saying Richard Petty won it for hours and hours afterward. And Donnie got pretty hot about it, rightly so, because Donnie won the race. And, <laughs> I got to say this, you know, I'm sorry to laugh, but I got to say it, you know, and Donnie, you know, here's the difference between Bobby Allison and Donnie Allison, and I love them both. They're like father figures to me and I love them dearly. Bobby is, is as smooth as a, as a, a mountain lake. Okay. I mean, he just never gets rattled. Donnie, it doesn't take very much at all to get Donnie rattled. Okay. But (laughs) Donnie, Donnie told Bill France Jr. He said, if you don't give me this race, I'm going to beat you up so bad. Your mama's (laughs) not going to know who you are. And and he, he just, Donnie is just, Donnie will let you know immediately how he feels. And I know he was okay. Let's call it halfway kidding, but he was very, distraught over not getting the win he finally did get the win but it was midnight that night and it was a scoring error again they were trying to take a you know uh you know the win away because he had lost the lap and his score messed up and long story short bill of it uh brian france who was 16 years old (laughs) at the time here we go was, was the person who finally this figured it out and showed him on paper that Donnie Allison was the winner of the race. Okay. And he said, this is where she messed up and this is where we messed up. And, you know, Bill France jr. I admired him dearly. I mean, I really did. And he said, when he was wrong, he was wrong. And he walked in the, the press box and said, we made it, we goofed, we made an error and this is where we made it. We're, we got egg on our face and this is where we made the error. And this is what we did wrong. And Donnie Allison is the winner of this race when he walked out. But it took hours of reading scorecards and trying to figure out what happened. But yeah, Donnie knew that he won the race. And, and Clyde Bolton of the Birmingham News called Donnie Allison the next morning and said, they gave you the race. He said, no, they didn't give it to me. I won it fair and square. 
and that one was pretty heated. That one got kind of ill, but, but Donnie had made up several laps in the last 20 laps or 10 laps of that race because of circumstances. Mm -hmm. They had a couple of, they had a couple of cautions that he made up some laps there and at the, in the closing laps of it. I don't remember exactly how many laps they had left when he started making up some laps, but he won it fair and square and somebody, his score. And I think didn't write down everything she was supposed to. And, uh, and they lost, you know, he lost the race or he didn't lose it. He, he was, they were trying to give it to Richard Petty. And as it turned out, Donnie was the fair and square winner of it. Another one was 1990 at North Wilkesboro with Brett Bodine. And I, you know, he, he continues to say he won it. And Larry McReynolds says he won it. And Daryl Waltrip says he didn't win it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that was 1990. And that one still, that was one of those that if the, both of them went to dinner together and had a steak, couple steaks and a, and a couple beers, they'd still walk away friends, but they'd still walk away not feeling like, you know, Brett won it and Daryl did. So anyway, that there are some controversial wins that will never be stopped. Some of them did soft, but it all races, and it just came down to an ink and a, and a, and a page of writing down, or you know, a check mark on a page, or, or writing down that number on the clock. Excuse me. Right, and, right. I'm, I'm that's just the way it was for many, many years. I'm curious of all the race controversies, especially where you know the guy that was initially judged as the winner winds up finishing second and the guy that was initially finished second winds up being the winner was there ever a very um uh distasteful or extremely argumentative or even a fight um between the first and second place finishers when it turned out that the second place guy wound up finishing first and the first place guy has the win taken away from him. I mean, was there any, was there one or two races that just okay. were so adamantly, you know, the, the outcome was so bad between the first and second place finishers that it, it came to, you know, a fist fight or what have you. Um, nothing, nothing's really coming to my mind right now about that. I, as far as scoring goes now, mm -hmm. I'm sure I'm sure there were some that somebody got spun out on the last lap, uh, you know, and, th and, and crew members went after each other. I remember, you know, in the Winston at, at Charlotte Motor Speedway, you know, Darrell Waltrip's crew and Rusty Wallace's crew, and I, I believe it was uh, 87, but I'm not sure of the year. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure it was 87 where they went after each other on pit road and things got kind of ugly, <clears throat> but that was just spinning each while Rusty spun Daryl out on the going towards the checkered flag, I believe. Um, and that I know for a fact, some of that went on in the fifties, uh, when, when drivers spun one another out, I remember there was a race in, gosh, I'm sorry. I don't remember the year. I'm, I'm, I'm foggy on this, but I remembered that Ricky Rudd and Daryl Earnhardt spun i want to say 90 or 91 maybe mm -hmm. and and that got pretty heated on pit road 
between their crews and, and Jeff Bodine went on to victory. They spun on the last going, uh, they had taken the white flag and they had spun and um, Jeff Bodine went on and, and that was pretty much, I think cost uh, um, Dale Earnhardt, maybe a championship. I can't remember the year now. But it got pretty heated between Ricky and, and Dale verbally. And then I think their crews just about got into it there. I remember that. But as far as scoring, no, I don't remember anything anybody getting uh, too sideways over a scoring incident. But I know some hurt feelings from some drivers that got wins, did not receive the win, mm -hmm. and somebody else did. And then after it was all said and done, the glory was gone and the victory laden ceremonies were gone then they got them the trophy in their living room and a handshake and that that's no good i mean that that's that's pretty pretty bad really i'm curious why i mean i agree with you i mean if you're gonna give the win to the guy that was originally second place and you give the trophy to him in his living room with no fan cheers or adulation or anything like that why didn't you just you know, give a, make the announcement at the next race. You know, I mean, odds are he's going to probably be there racing. So, you know, let's say the win was initially, um, you know, uh, let's say at Michigan, for example, and, you know, the win initially went to somebody else, but then three or four hours later, after everybody leaves, they say, oh, no, the original guy was not the winner. The second place guy was the winner. And then the next race, let's say, is at Darlington. Well, why don't you just you know, having an announcement or a presentation before the race. It seems so simple to me. I, I don't understand why NASCAR didn't do that. Well, I, I don't either. And and that would be the right and proper thing to do, in my opinion. Um, yeah, it's, you know, I think they take the, take the idea mm -hmm. of it's, it's already done, been there, done that. We're moving on to the next race. You know, but that's that would be the right thing to do is to have some kind of a recognition to say, you know, this we didn't do it right last week. We're going to do it right this week. But, um, you know, I, I think that, that would be the right thing to do. I just they just don't do it. Or right. Didn't then. Right. Yeah. OK. Any other scoring stories that you might have up your sleeve here, Ben? Um, well, um, I'm just trying to think. If there's any others, I know there are others that, uh, that the, there's just been some drivers that didn't, were not rewarded with the win that should have. I'm trying to think of there's There have been others, uh, that, well, there's, there's another one too. I thought was really interesting. It just came to mind 1984 at Nashville. Um, believe it or not, the, there were two teammates. I think it's the first time it's ever happened. That was Daryl Waltrip and Neil Bonnet, both driving for Junior Johnson. Uh, it came down to both of them going for the win. Uh, and uh, as it turned out, Daryl, I believe, was flagged the winner. And as it turned out, Neil Bonnet went to victory lane. And both it was kind of odd seeing both of those cars because they were painted identically. One was number 11, which was Daryl's. The other was Neil Bonnet with number 12. But they were identical cars mm -hmm. racing for the win. And as it turned out, um, I want to say, I want to say Neil ended up getting the win. Daryl went to victory lane and they pulled Daryl's car out, and put Neil's car in. And then, and junior, I remember the quote from junior Johnson, like, I don't care who wins because I'm the team owner for both cars <laughs> and you know, I, I get the money either way, but 
but you know that it wasn't heated but i mean it was you know anytime you're the win, the driver obviously you want the win and i do remember another one there in nashville 1974 kale yarborough and bobby allison uh both of their cars went to victory lane both of them drove in carol first bobby second and i remember bobby getting into kale's face and kale was into bobby's face that you know the 79 day when they got into the fight there after the daytona 500 that wasn't the first time they, mm-hmm. they got into each other face nose to nose and toes to toes as they say <laughs> um yeah they that wasn't the first time they 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 respected each other but they had their moments and i do remember 74 they both bobby was in the coca-cola chevrolet and kale was in junior johnson's car care chevrolet number 11 so it's number 11 and number 12 again going to victory lane and nashville just like it was 10 years later with number 11 and number 12 with both the junior johnson cars it's kind of ironic that it worked out that way and but Junior was so funny. It doesn't really matter to me, but Junior was funny. Junior was funny because, see, both of those teams were separated in Ingle Hollow, North Carolina, by a creek and a bridge. And Junior would go to the 11 team and said, Oh, you wouldn't believe what these guys have heard the 12 teams saying about you guys. <laughs> and then he crossed the creek and said, Oh, you wouldn't believe what those, you know, what that 11 team saying about you or the 12 teams saying about you 11 guys. And they would, he would do that kind of on purpose, you know, to kind of rile them up and get them competitive. And then, you know, it all hit the fan in Nashville when they weren't fighting each other, but they were just, you know, both drivers going to victory lane. I ended up going to, I think it went to Neil and, and they all had to back his car out of victory lane and give it to Neil, but interesting because of a scoring error. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, as I said at the beginning of the show, you know, this is a, a monumental uh, or a milestone episode of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. This is episode number 75. And as we do in every episode of the uh, the podcast, we always equate the episode number with the car, uh, uh, you know, equivalent car number. And so car number 75 has had a a mixed bag of success and uh, ben, I'll let you uh, start off with the first uh, start of the 75, and then we have the first win. And then let's go into the guy who won the most, because you've talked about him a few times already in the last several minutes. And um, yeah, there's some interesting thing there, too. But who uh, who start, Who had the first start in the 75 back, uh, back in the day, back in uh, 1950, I guess it was. Yeah, it was uh, September 24th, 1950, Jerry. It was uh, Tim Flock. Uh, who was a NASCAR champion, uh, and they came at North Wilkesboro Speedway. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the 15th race of that year, and he started 24th and finished 12th. And the team owner uh, was Frank Christian. Uh, and Tim actually, you know, I was trying to see what kind of, I don't know, but then what kind of car it was. I think it was an Oldsmobile, but his wife, Sarah Christian, actually uh, drove some races and for her husband, Frank Christian. But yeah, uh, Tim Flock uh, started the race in 24th and finished 12th that day. It was September 24th, 1950, driving car number 75 for the first time in NASCAR history. And now the car number 75, it had six wins overall. And the first win came when, Ben? Uh, it came with 
uh, Fireball Roberts, March 12th, 1961 at March Banks Speedway. And that was all the way out in Hanford, California. And he started second and finished first that day, March 12th, right. 1961. That's right. And the car number 75 has had a total of six wins in its career. And that leads us to the high point. Uh, we've talked about this gentleman several times over the last few minutes. And that is Ben? Neil Bonnet. And he drove for Ray Mock Racing, Butch Mock, Barbara Healy. Interesting little story there, though. He Sadly, he was in a crash at Charlotte Motor Speedway in October of 1987 uh, and shattered his right leg. And pretty much everybody thought, you know, he's not going to be back and that's going to be the end of his career. He worked extremely hard. He was driving the 75 Raymont car that day, worked extremely hard in therapy, determined to come back. And then he went uh, 1988, he went over to Australia, won a race over there came back and won, I think he finished fourth in the Daytona 500 in 1988, came back, won at Richmond, Virginia uh, in 1988 and won a race at uh, North Carolina Motor Speedway at Rockingham. And just everybody thought, wow, I mean, the, the therapy was um, amazing that he went through. And I think one of the funniest things he said, he was always cracking jokes for the media. And he said, well, I didn't know I was going to do this good. If I knew this, I, I, I guess you guys are expecting me to break my other leg. You, you know, <laughs> you thought I didn't know I was going to do this good. He was a great, great friend. And we lost him, of course, uh, during a practice session in night, February 11th, 1994 uh, at Daytona. He was preparing to drive in the Daytona 500 that year. And just, oh, my gosh, so sad that we lost Neil that year. And uh, he, he died in a, a crash during a practice, actually the first practice session, I believe, for the Daytona 500 that year. We just loved him so much. He was such a great gentleman, loved talking to him. And we just, he was also a great announcer for CBS Sports. And gosh, we just loved him so much. We hate, hate we lost him. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and then, you know, the number 75, I find this interesting. Wally Dallenbach Jr. drove it for a number of races uh, through, throughout the uh, 2000, 2000 season. And then there were uh, a few guys, Stuart Kirby, Mike Garvey, Wayne Anderson. And then Brandon Gaughan, that was through 2005. And then Brandon Gaughan uh, drove it for four times in the 2017 season. And we have not seen it since then. So, um, you know, even though it's been uh, started, it hit me. Let me see here. I've got it. I just lost it here. Give me one quick second. 75 okay. uh, has 828 starts, believe it or not. But, um, you know, it it uh, six wins, 63 top fives, 150, 194 top tens, and eight career polls. But, um, you know, it's just not been a... Uh, a successful number so it hasn't been raced much uh, over these last uh, 20 some years ever since wally mm -hmm. dallenbach uh, jr climbed out of it uh after the end of the 2000 season but um yeah. interesting though about neil bonnet i mean you're right i mean he's a guy that really uh you know he 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 could have had well he had the best of both worlds you know both as a driver and as an announcer and you know his grandson justin i got to know him uh, uh quite a, quite well Justin had a, um, a very bad accident in Pensacola at Five Flags Speedway a few years back um, and uh, came back from those injuries and is back racing again, thankfully. But uh, he, uh, you know, he was, I, I'm not sure if he ever really knew his grandfather or not. I'm not really sure, but um, 
but it was a good kid. I really got a chance to get to know him really well too, as yeah. well. But um, yeah. Neil Bonnet, I think, you know, he was, he was, he was a name that, you know, certainly to, was one to be reckoned with for sure. Oh yeah. And just, I can't say enough good about Neil. He was so much fun to talk to and great interview. Anytime you talk to him and never met a stranger either. He just, mm-hmm. you know, we've talked about Neil a lot on this podcast, but he, you talk about just the garage area of broken hearts the day he passed away and and all of us we we suddenly maybe we should have tried harder but we tried really hard to say neil you know you've been there done that you've you've won races you've been very successful and now you built a second career as an announcer and he was so so good at it too he was he was such a natural behind the microphone and he could tell you things he could tell fans things that were very technical in a very easy, understandable way. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had such a great uh, voice. He he could just, it would resonate among everyone. I mean, he just was so, so talented as an announcer. And, he, and no one would have looked down upon him if he just said, you know what, I'm just going to stop racing. But it was so in his blood. He wanted so badly to come back. And he, he had like, I think, 18 victories to his credit, driving for the Wood Brothers and driving for... Uh, you know, JD Stacy, and uh, he drove for children some races. Um, he just he had a great successful career, and he would have been great to stop, and and it would have been okay. But everybody tried to talk him into not coming back, and sadly he did, and that was the fate. But you know that's the way I guess the good Lord wanted it to end for him, and it did. And we, we got we got lots of great memories. Let's end it on a positive. We got. A lot of great memories of Neil, and we got some awesome YouTube videos of his victories. We can always go back and visit, and mm-hmm. uh, great guy. But uh, one thing I want to mention real quick, Jerry, mm-hmm. uh, I went back while we were talking, and I, I want to look. I want to correct something. Not really correct. I want to add to. Let's say it that way. October fifteenth, nineteen eighty nine. I went a little bit blank here. I just couldn't remember. This is when uh, Bodine won the race at North Wilkesboro. And Ricky Rudd and Daryl Earnhardt spun on that last lap. And, and uh, uh, Rusty Wallace went on and won the championship uh, that year. But it, it just came down to that final lap. And they had taken the white flag. And Rudd and Earnhardt were going for the win. And they spun uh, in turn one. And uh, Jeff Bodine dropped to the bottom, driving for Hendrick Motorsports in the five car. And he was probably the one guy that was more surprised than anybody in the place because he was set to finish third. It's going to be a good top five day for him. And then all of a sudden they spun and, and Earnhardt got pretty angry with, with Rudd. And I think they, if they could have gotten to each other, that w- that might've been a, a, a fisticuff situation because the crews kept each other, them from each other because Earnhardt was really mad about it. And that was the race that pretty much kept him from winning that eighth championship. Mm-hmm. And, and they were not happy after that was over, but, uh, so it was October 15th, 1989. Uh, and it, it came and the only lap that earned, uh, that Jeff would I led was the last one. And I guess that's the one that matters. Right? That's the one that matters. That's right. Let me ask you this, you know, Earnhardt was known as the intimidator, obviously. And he, mm-hmm. you know, he cast such a, um a shadow around the racetrack people you know they feared him when they saw him in their rearview mirror they knew what was coming yeah they did did he ever but the thing is maybe i'm wrong 
but and he was most of his career was a little bit before my time in NASCAR because I was covering primarily IndyCar at the time. I mean, I did do some NASCAR coverage, but the majority of my time was primarily in the IndyCar and NHRA ranks. Did he actually physically ever get into a physical fight? I mean, a knockdown, dragout, slobber knocker? No, I, I don't so. know of one. No, hey, I the only time. So. No, the only time I think he ever got into anything really that I remember. Now I could, you know, after the podcast goes off, I'll remember something. But uh, it was at Bristol. He and Rusty got into it a little bit. That's the only time I remember. And they were throwing water bottles at each other over something. And but I do remember the fans when he got into Terry Labonte and put Terry in the wall to win in the gosh, yeah, 99, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, I did see some Earnhardt fans ripping their shirts off and throwing them at the fence. I saw that myself. They were upset with him for the way he pulled that off, and that was not cool. That's the only time I saw fans upset with him, but I mean, him being upset with somebody. I don't, I don't really honestly remember that. Now, again, normally I think about things after we've stopped the podcast, <laughs> but you know, that's the way it works, but, uh, no, I don't, but now, you know, he, Bobby Allison had a great quote for me once. He told me, he said, people would see has that black hood come up in their rear view mirror and they'd wreck all by themselves <laughs> because they'd see him coming. He didn't have to, you know, he would just kind of wink at them and do that half grin as he went by and they're fighting for dear life to get out of the wall because he never touched them. He would just, they'd just be so intimidated by him coming up on them. And, you know, he would do that little, you know, point at them or something, you know, they see him in the rear view mirror, but he and Bodine didn't get along at all. I mean, he, you know, they, they had all kinds of problems with each other, uh, on the racetrack and they didn't like each other. And, uh, you know, that was the, his main nemesis, I would think, but I don't, I don't remember him ever getting into a shoving match with anybody. Don't know that he really had to, he just, he would get in your head. He would play. I've told this before. We could end it with this. I remember one time 1990, when he was going for the championship that year, uh, in Atlanta, the last race, he was going up against Mark Martin and, and the car, the three car that he was driving did not handle well at all. And he told me this himself. And it was such a funny story. He said, what I did was I went to my motorhome and I got a, one of those aluminum fold up chairs that you used to buy. And I brought it back out and I told the guys, I said, he said, it, it's handling like crap, but just put a cover over it. And Shomer and I said, what do you mean? So just put a cover over it. I know what I'm doing. So he put a cover over it and he said, he got that fold up chair and he put it at the back of the car in the garage area and he put his feet up on the spoiler and went to sleep. And so they're like, well, why are you doing that? Because we need to work on the car. I said, not yet. And put his feet up on the spoiler, went to sleep. Well, that did so much mental psyche to the, to Mark's team that they were all over the place. And so he knew that if he could get in their head, that he's, he said, I got this championship one. And so that's what exactly what happened. He wasn't, he was running horrible in the car, but if I can get in their head, they're going to be running horrible too. They will fix it. And so they ran five or six laps with it horrible and put a cover over it. And then he took a nap and they saw that. And that's, that's all it took. And then he ended up 
running really well. I can't, I think he may have won the race. I can't remember, but that mm. psyche that he put in their head to say, I've got you beat, even though they didn't have him beat, the car was horrible. That's all it, that was Earnhardt. That's he got in their head so bad. And, and I believe they called in Robert Yates and they put a Robert Yates motor in it and all this stuff. And they ended up not, they ended up not winning the championship, but they were as bad as Mark was, but that's what Earnhardt did. did. He was good about getting somebody's head. He didn't have to beat them up. He, you know, that, that half grin of his and that, you know, that Earnhardt stagger swagger, I meant to say stagger too. (laughs) (laughs) Swagger, not stagger swagger. I mean, he just, you know, he just, he had it down. He had it down pat. He knew how to get in their head and that's all it took. He was all barking, no bite. That's pretty much it. That's right. Exactly. The the swagger, not the stagger. That's right. That's right. Well, we're going to swagger out of here and that's, uh, that's going to put a wrap on episode number 75 of a lifetime in NASCAR podcast. Great stories as usual. Um, uh, I learned so much from Ben every week, and you know I knew virtually nothing about scoring. Uh, you know the the various history about scoring. Uh, I mean, I knew obviously about transponders, but I mean, boy, Ben has so many good or had so many good stories today about uh, the different elements of scoring. You know the uh, the the guys who thought they won and they didn't win. So I hope everyone enjoyed today's uh, episode. Next week we have episode number seventy six. We're getting closer and closer to episode. So number 100 that's going to be one heck of a party on that one we're looking forward yes, to that one is. yes it is yes, so it is. all right so that's it we're, so we're going to put a wrap on episode number 75 he's ben white i'm jerry bunkowski thanks everyone to listening for listening to episode an episode of a, uh, of a life or this episode of a lifetime of nascar podcast hope everyone has a great week and we'll catch you next week on a lifetime of nascar podcast take care everyone Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.